uh, we've just prayed, so we will use that as an opportunity now to just transition right into our sermon for this morning. And to do so, I actually want you to start by looking in this room for all the crosses that you can see. How many crosses can you find in this room? It's kind of an adult version of I Spy. I mean, we got a couple here on the podium, right? There's one behind me. Got a cross over there. I think the longer we look, please don't spend 30 minutes doing this. But you will realize that as Christians, we see pictures of the cross everywhere. We see it on our jewelry. We see it on graphic designs on social media associated with churches. We see it on Christian albums. We see it on Christian books. We see it on church signs and on church buildings. The cross is something that is constantly around us, probably so much so that we take it for granted. In fact, most Christians, I suspect, tend to look at the cross kind of like the Christian version of the ABCs. The thing that you had to learn early on, but then you can kind of move on from it. You can kind of just store it in the back of your brain and start focusing on uh, deeper, more interesting topics. We tend to, I believe, as Christians, sometimes look at the cross like that as something that we needed in Awana in order to be saved, something that is necessary to teach to children, but now something that we can move on from and understand it as just a basic belief of Christianity. Well, as John Piper said, the problem with Christians is not that they need more to believe, but it's that they need to believe more. And the same is true for us that we don't need more things in addition to the cross in order to grow as Christians, but we do need to believe in the cross more. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at how Paul, he's actually going to take the cross, this simple thing that perhaps we've taken for granted, and he's going to put it under a spiritual microscope. And he's going to examine exactly what the cross means And in doing so, by showing us what the cross means, it will help us as Christians understand how we can live by faith in dependence on the cross, not just as something that we learned at the beginning of our salvation, but as the very means of what we must depend on for every single day of our salvation. Paul's going to talk about that in Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 through 15. So please turn with me, if you haven't already, to Colossians chapter 2. And what we see here in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, is the end of a section that Paul has been focusing on in regards to Christ. This has been a mini-series where again and again he's been focusing on the fact that Christians are in Christ. They're in him, starting in verse 6 and now ending in verse 15. And what I would like us to actually do as a church family is I would like us to actually read this whole section, verses 6 to 15 this morning. So would you be willing to stand as I read God's word this morning so we can remember what God, through Paul, has had to teach about himself and what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of him. This is Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 6. This is what we've been focusing on in our sermons for the past month. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, 
rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you are circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ." having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who are dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. What are those last two words? In him. And all God's people said, amen, you may be seated. Even though we're preaching verse by verse, remember, the context is that Paul is writing a letter to these people. And that within each verse, there is the context of ideas in paragraphs and sections that he's trying to get across. What I've put up uh, almost every week for the past month is this slide showing the therefore thesis statement in Colossians 2 verse 6. How everything up to that point was Paul reminding the Colossians of how they received Christ, but that now everything after verse 6 in Colossians is going to be instructions on how to walk in Christ. And that in chapter 2, Paul is going to divide that chapter into two parts, where specifically in the first half, the section that we're going to end this morning, he's going to focus on the sufficiency of Christ as the means by which we walk in him. We walk in Christ by depending on Christ. That's going to be what Paul has focused on, which is why we see that phrase, in him, repeated over and over and over again. As we see in the next slide, where we've seen that we're fulfilled in him, circumcised in him, buried in him, raised in him. And now today, finally, in verse 13, we're going to see that we are made alive in him. And the only way that we can understand that we are truly alive in Christ is by understanding what Christ did for us on the cross. So on your outline, you're going to see three points that are going to highlight the three things in this passage that Paul specifically says Christ did for us on the cross. And by understanding what Christ has done for us on the cross, it will teach us how by faith we can actually live a Christian life that is walking with him, that is growing in him, and that is depending on him as one who is alive. So look with me at verse 13. Paul starts out with that phrase, and you, where he shifts the spotlight. Maybe you remember me preaching a sermon on that phrase before, and you. It's because Paul has already pulled this trick. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, he does the same thing. Look at Colossians 1, 21. He says, and you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Paul shifts that spotlight right after in chapter 1, giving that famous hymn about Jesus Christ. 
describing all the great and glorious things that Jesus has done and who he is. He then says, compared to that, this is who you are in chapter 1. Well, Paul's doing the same thing in chapter 2. What we've seen in chapter 2 is he's going back again and again, pointing to the sufficiency of Christ, how we're in him, how we're circumcised in him, buried in him, raised in him. And now as he ends that section, he again shifts the spotlight, not just on the Colossians, but on Graham Emanuel Baptist Church, so that we can reflect on who we are in comparison to Christ. Because if we don't do that, if we don't see the difference between who Christ is and who we are, then there's no reason to look at the cross. And at the beginning of verse 13, he shifts that spotlight for the Colossians to focus on themselves, and he reminds them that they were dead in their trespasses. Trespass can be understood as another word for sin, for wrongdoing. And not even that, but he says, by the way, to Jewish people living in Colossae, he says this at the beginning of 13, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He's not writing to just Gentiles, he's also writing to Jewish people. And your translation is a polite translation. Because that word uncircumcision is actually the word foreskin. That's how he's describing all humans in their sinful flesh. You, you were dead in your trespasses, Paul tells the Colossians. And you are dead in the foreskin that is your flesh, your sinful body. That's the imagery that Paul is using to describe it. Meaning that something must be done about it. That if we are to walk in Christ, it must involve knowing and depending on the solution that God provided for us being dead in our trespasses and us being dead in the flesh of our sin. And that's going to be what points us to the cross. The first point that Paul wants us to know about what God has done for us through the cross is that God has forgiven your penalty of sin. And the key word in that being the penalty of your sin. We see that at the second half of verse 13, where it says that God made us alive together with him. But how did he do it? By the end of verse 13, he did it by having forgiven us all our trespasses. The song that we sang just a few minutes ago says that God is holy, holy, holy. No other word does God use three times in a row to describe himself other than holy. Holy means that God is perfect. Holy means that God is totally different and set apart from everything else. And it also means that because God is holy, 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 that God is also completely offended with sin. Because we are sinners and we commit sin, there are consequences for that. This is what the Bible has to say about how God thinks about sin. Psalm chapter 11, verse 5 says that his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Psalm chapter 5, verse 5 says that God, he hates all evildoers. Guess who's an evildoer? You and me. In a world where you can go to any church on any street corner and hear that God loves you, 
These verses paint a different picture, don't they? When Paul in Romans chapter 5 said that we were enemies with God, he wasn't just writing that to be poetic. Our sin caused division between us and God. Our sin made us enemies of God. And I want you to reflect on the fact that sin always has consequences. Sin causes destruction, doesn't it? It can cause destruction in your marriage. It can cause destruction in your family. It can cause destruction in local churches. There are always consequences for sin. In fact, Paul, again, in Romans, makes it very clear that the wages of sin is death. Because we have committed sin against a holy God, there is a penalty that we deserve. But because of the cross, he also makes it clear that that penalty that we deserved was put on Jesus instead. You also see that we have Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2 here, that we had separation from God. Because of Jesus dying on the cross, he forgave us of our trespasses. That word forgive that we see in verse 13 of Colossians chapter 2 is similar to the kind of word that would be used to describe one who gives a gift, one who is gracious, one who is merciful, who he could punish, he could be angry, he could harm, but instead of giving a bad thing, he chooses to give a good thing. And the only reason why God, being a holy God, can give you, a sinner, his enemy, anything good is because the punishment for your sin that you deserved, God decided to put on his son, Jesus Christ, instead. That's what the cross means. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, that for our sake, God made him, being Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what it means when it says that Jesus is our propitiation. Look at that verse in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, that he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That word propitiation means the thing that absorbs wrath. That's what propitiation means. Think about a time when you were angry, when you were just bubbling over with anger and energy and you just had to let it out and, and, and you took a pillow or you took a punching bag and you just hit it and you let out your anger, you let out your wrath on that punching bag. It was probably a, a, a sinful anger, but that's a different uh, sermon that we're going to have to talk about another time. The point is that you were unleashing your wrath onto an object. That punching bag would have been the propitiation for you. Well, God being a holy God hates sin. And being a just God, he rightly so has wrathful punishment in store for evil and for wrongdoing. But that anger, rightly so, that was directed at first against us because we were sinners, God, by his grace, chose to unleash on the body of Jesus Christ himself on the cross. 
And as a result of that, the penalty of sin is not something that we have to fear anymore. That separation from God as him being holy and us being his enemies, that's not something that we have to experience anymore. Our status as his enemies, that no longer needs to be the case because the wrath that God had in store for his enemy, he put instead on his son. As a result, we as Christians must walk by faith in dependence on the cross in recognition that God hates sin. That that instrument of execution that we must remember it being, that ugly, torturous, horrendous death that the cross delivered, that's how God feels about your sin. Therefore, it should be a reminder about how you should feel about your sin. But it's also a reminder of God's grace in his love for you, that he would put his wrath on his only begotten son instead of you who deserved it, so that there would not be separation between you and him, but that there would be friendship between you and him. The cross is a reminder that God hates sin, that there's always a penalty for sin, but that Jesus took that penalty for us. As Christians, let's look to the cross continually, a reminder of that, and remember that that only matters if we chose to respond to it by faith. If we chose to repent of our sins and call out to God in faithful dependence on what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for salvation, then that's what the cross means for us. If you haven't done that, you are still God's enemy. Let's now look at the second point. And by the way, the big idea we're going to save till the end. So all of these points, they're going to build up to one conclusion that we see overall in this passage of what the big idea is. The second thing that God has accomplished on the cross, he hasn't just forgiven us of the penalty of sin, but God has also erased your record of sin. That's what he says in verse 14, where it says that by canceling the record of debt, that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I want you to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 16. We're going to see an example of how God used to do this in the Old Testament age. Because for the Israelites, the way that they understood their sin collectively as a people is that every year their sin accrued a debt before God. As if every sin committed by every person within the camp of Israel was written down on a piece of paper. Just like your credit card statement will show every purchase that you made and the debt that you have accrued, the Israelites understood their sinfulness as accruing a debt for themselves. But on one day every year in Leviticus chapter 16, what's called the Day of Atonement or the Day of Reconciliation. The Jewish people call it Yom Kippur in Leviticus chapter 16. We see that once a year, God would clear that record of debt in order for the high priest Aaron to go into God's presence into the Holy of Holies. And the way that he does that in Leviticus chapter 16 is specifically through two animals. Let's look at those two animals in Leviticus 16, and we'll start in verse 15 to look at the first animal. 
The first animal is a goat, where in verse 15, it describes it as this. It says that, and he, being Aaron, shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat, which fun fact, that word mercy seat is related to the New Testament word for propitiation. Mercy seat is referring to that place on top of the Ark of the Covenant where, remember the Indiana Jones movie, you got the two angels with the wings over the covenant, right between those wings on top of the box, that was the place where the blood would be sprinkled and that was called the mercy seat, which is where the New Testament word for propitiation comes from. Because this blood of the goat would be sprinkled on top of the Ark of the Covenant before the mercy seat, And in verse 16, it says, and he shall make atonement or reconciliation or restored relationship for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. So Aaron would take this innocent, cute little goat without blemish, without spot, hadn't done anything wrong, looking you up in the eyes. Aaron would put his hands on its head and he would put that record of sin onto that goat and that goat would serve as the propitiation, just like what we saw in the first point. That the wrath that God had in store for the people of Israel for their record of debt, he put on that goat instead. They killed the goat. It's blood spills, they would sprinkle the blood and God would look at that blood and he would see this takes the place. This was the death, this was the wrath poured out in substitution of what is deserved for my people. But there was also a second goat. Let's look at that second goat now in verse 20 of Leviticus chapter 16. And by the way, Leviticus chapter 16 is one of those chapters of the Bible that you should just have the reference memorized When you hear the reference Leviticus 16, you should just automatically connect it to the Day of Atonement, the instructions for the Day of Atonement by two animals, one goat that was killed, the second goat where this happens. Verse 20, And when he, Aaron, has made an end of atonement for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat, And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in his readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. The point of this second goat was to illustrate the fact that God's plan of salvation wasn't just to provide a substitute for the penalty of your sin, but for God to actually throw away any record of your sin, any history of your sin, God wants to completely remove it from your presence by putting the hands on that living goat, often called the scapegoat. The idea was that God was removing their wrongdoings out of their midst. 
He was taking that record of debt, and he was throwing it out of the camp. He was taking it out into the wilderness, out into a remote area. And now look at how Paul describes it in Colossians chapter 2, where he says that God cancels the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, the ESV says he set aside. The explicit, the explicit Greek says that it took him out of the midst, that he took this record of debt and he led it out of the midst, out of the camp. Very similar language used to describe what happened to the goat in Leviticus. That's how God describes what he did for us on the cross. He took our sin. He took this record of debt that people would have to have on a piece of paper. And on that piece of paper, like graffiti that would be scratched out, uh, they would blot it out. They would, they would mark it out as if it had never existed. That's what God did for you on the cross. Remember Psalm 103, verse 12, it says this, that as far as the east is from where? The west. So far does God remove our transgressions from us. Look at Isaiah chapter 38, verse 17. It says that for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Isaiah 43, verse 25. God says, I am he who blots. It's that same uh, Hebrew equivalent word. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Micah 7.19 says that God will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot like Lucy squishing those grapes on the reruns. That he will cast out all our sins into the depths of the sea. God intends not just to die as a substitute for our sin, but to take away the record and the history of sin that stands against us. He took that and he nailed it to the cross. The list of the things that you did yesterday, the list of the sins that you're going to today, that was nailed on the cross with Jesus. It was tradition when someone was crucified that the reason why they were being crucified would also be nailed on the cross with them. That even Jesus himself, they hung a sign that said that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Those who were crucified would have a sign showing on the cross why they were being crucified. That sign on the cross that Jesus was crucified on was a list of your sins. That's the thing that was on the cross that Jesus died on. Your sins, even the ones that we as a church family don't know about, even the ones that your spouse doesn't know about, that your coworkers, your friends who didn't know you when you're younger, those sins, God knows all of them. And they were on that sign written on that cross where Jesus died for you, outside of the city of Jerusalem, by the way, alluding to that idea of the scapegoat. So that someday, if you have repented of your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ, you will stand before God as a judge, and there will be a long piece of paper with every single thing that you have committed. But when God looks at that sheet of paper, he will not see on that sheet of paper any record of wrongdoing. The only thing that God will see on that sheet of paper is the blood of the Lamb. He's not going to see a record of your wrongdoing. He's going to see a list of Christ's righteousness. He's going to see that on your record. 
and you are going to be in heaven with him as a result of Jesus' righteousness being on your record and your list of sins being on his cross. That is what God has done for us through the cross so that when we see that cross, as we grow as Christians, we must also be reminded that we are not meant to be identified with our sin. That we are not meant as Christians to live a defeatist life, wallowing in our sinfulness, wallowing in our history of sin, constantly again and again saying, well, I've always struggled with this, or, oh, this is something I'll never be free of. Christ has died for that. God wants us to live as those who are alive with Christ and to not be living in guilt or in a sense of defeatism as a result of our former sin, but to identify ourselves now with Christ's righteousness. The cross is a reminder that God hates sin. He punished Jesus rightly for the sin that we should have deserved, but that he also has removed sin. He has canceled it. He has taken that record of debt, and he has completely blotted it out with the blood of the Lamb. Let's now look at the third point in verse 15. This is an interesting point where he says that he also disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them, and those last words being, in him. The third and final point is this, that when we look on the cross, it's also a reminder that God has exposed those who promote sin, whether it's politicians or government, music artists, Hollywood, angels, demons, whoever it might be, the cross is a reminder that God has triumphed over them. Again, in verse 15, the translation that you have is too polite. It says that the rulers and authorities have been disarmed. That's actually not necessarily true. They are still on this earth and they still pose danger. Paul says in Ephesians that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual things. Rulers and authorities applies both to earthly powers and spiritual powers. They still are a threat, but they're not a threat that we need to be afraid of or a threat that we need to take seriously because Christ on the cross defeated those threats. And even more so, that word for disarmed, it's actually the word for stripped naked, which is what a Roman general would do when defeating an enemy. He would have this parade where he would ride victoriously on a white horse, by the way, and behind him would be these leaders and rulers whom he had defeated, and they would be walking naked for the sake of being publicly shamed. Just like Jesus was stripped naked for the sake of him being shamed, these rulers would be dragged behind the white horse as a way of this emperor saying, look at these people you were so afraid of. Look at this guy who is talking such a big game, who seems so tough. He was throwing around so many threats. Look at him now. He's just a scared little naked guy walking down a parade and actually walking down a parade to his death where at the end of that parade, he would be executed. All the sinful powers of this world that we still live in the midst of, the cross proves that Christ has defeated them. Their execution hasn't occurred yet but they have been exposed for what they are because they couldn't keep Jesus dead. The guards could be put in front of the grave. 
The crucifixion could have happened. They could have done everything they could, both Satan and Roman authorities, but nothing could have kept Jesus out of the grave. Jesus is a God of life. Therefore, the miracle was more that he managed to stay dead for three days. Not that he even managed to raise on the third day. He's the God of life. Of course he did that. Because all these rulers and authorities that may be scary to us, they're silly to God in comparison. And the cross shows that Christ has triumphed even over them. So the cross should be a reminder for us as Christians that the things of this world that try to impose and promote sin over us, even if through persecution, that Christ has triumphed over it through the cross. Therefore, we shouldn't fear it. All of this leads us to the big idea for this morning, that in summary of this statement, this cross being under the microscope, here's the overall big idea of what Paul's getting at. That the Colossians need to live like their sin has been put to death. That the way to live alive with God is to recognize that Christ has died for us and that we have died with Christ The cross should be a daily reminder to you as you walk in your Christian life. It should be something that you meditate on. Every time you see the cross in this room, at another place, hanging on someone's neck, you should see it as a reminder that Christ has taken the penalty for your sin. He has erased the record of your sin, and he has exposed and triumphed over those who promote sin. And before we end, I have to say this that if you have never trusted Jesus as your Savior, nothing I've said up to this point applies to you. You're still an enemy of God. But if you recognize what Christ has done for you on the cross and you choose to believe on it, to repent from your sinful life, confess your sinfulness to God, and by faith choose and proclaim to him that you want to depend on Christ's righteousness for your salvation, the Bible promises you will be saved. Do that today. And the rest of us, let's continue to live in it today. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for the cross. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.